Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Ian Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Professor Allison Varsali speaking about her book, Children of Reunion, Vietnamese Adoptions and the Politics of Family Migrations, published in 2017 by the University of North Carolina Press. Allison Varsali is Professor of History at Cal State Fullerton, where she teaches and does research on histories of immigration, multiracial relations, the American West, and the Asian American experience. This is Professor Varsali's second book. Her first was Making a Non-White America, Californians Coloring Outside Ethnic Lines, published in 2008 by the University of California Press. I really enjoyed reading Children of Reunion and speaking about it with Professor Varsali, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies. I am Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we are talking to Alison Varsali about her new book, Children of Reunion, Vietnamese Adoptions and the Politics of Family Migrations. This book was published in 2017 by the University of North Carolina Press. Alison is professor of history at Cal State Fullerton. Alison, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you so much, Ian. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation. Great. I am as well. Alison, I wonder if we could start the conversation by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Sure, sure. Um, so I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania um, in the 1970s, which I guess has some relevance to my book um, that, that focuses upon that, that decade. And it's also a city where um, the Vietnamese were resettled in significant numbers. But um, I grew up there. All my family is from Pennsylvania. And I uh, did my graduate work at UCLA. Um, so coming to California um, was a new experience and I felt a bit foreign, but uh, soon enough fell in love um, with the state. And I was really interested in immigration history, partially because of my own experience. So my grandparents um, came from Eastern Europe. Um, and I think that the immigrant story, it's different in California because of the variety of immigrant groups and the, the strong presence of Asian immigration. So I, I focused upon the history of American West, but immigrants within the West, including Asian immigrants um, for my dissertation. Uh, and then um, that dissertation became the, the basis of my first book um, that looked at the civil rights struggles of many minorities in California who often were clustered in the same neighborhoods because of restrictive housing covenants and limitations in education and employment. But I found that out of that kind of proximity in the 30s and 40s um, came really interesting kind of cultural combinations and friendships and marriages and and even some collective um, organizing to challenge shared forms of discrimination um, that that had some successes in toppling um, the legal supports of discrimination in California, especially in marriage, education, and employment. Um, 
And then I continued to, to look at immigration. Um, this, this current project kind of drifts a, a little bit from that. It's no longer contained to California, um, even if California hosts um, large Vietnamese um, populations. But I think immigration has been kind of the theme of, of my work over time. I see. And did you have any interactions with the Vietnamese uh, uh, refugees who were resettled in the Philadelphia area growing up? You mentioned that you were aware that there, there were some there, but was this a topic that had sort of entered your consciousness, you think, earlier on? Or, or how did you uh, come to, uh, I guess, the subject of the book uh, of Children of Reunion? Yeah, you know, it, I think in the 1970s, I wasn't completely aware of their presence, but then on retrospect, I remember that there were a couple of Vietnamese students in my in my classes. They came in in high school, um, and also I remember one of my um, family members through their their Catholic church um, had been briefly housing uh, Vietnamese refugees. So I, I might not have been thinking about it at the time, but but I wonder in some ways whether that kind of shaped my interest. Um, I, many of the, the Vietnamese adoptees and Amerasians um, who I interviewed for the book are close to my age. Um, so I, I think there is that, that personal connection of growing up through a period that was defined in part by um, memories of the Vietnam War. And of course, Vietnamese memories are different than American memories, but I think that um, was an impetus. Um, but I think the broader origins of the book came from a curiosity about families as a site of social and political change. And I guess in my first book, I looked at a number of interracial families that were formed despite kind of cultural and sometimes legal uh, prohibitions against kind of interracial marriages. And I was curious about what the larger implications of those kind of families and their children were. So I, I think I'd come across a couple of cases of, you know, Vietnamese adoptees, and most of these Vietnamese um, children were adopted into white middle-class families. So I think I became curious about what, what that meant um, and whether those families altered kind of the meanings of the refugee struggle and uh, the Vietnam War itself. Um, right. Um, I think I also uh, another maybe line of, of continuity is uh, my interest in kind of celebrating and highlighting the the stories of of people in the kind of the text. So I relied in my work often on oral histories um, as a kind of source material that gets at very kind of personal and, and intimate truths that you might not find through other sources. And then I've really tried to to emphasize those those oral histories within the text um so there's some that that was a key part of the project right um did you um get to know um you'd mentioned that that some of the the vietnamese um and amerasian uh, adoptees that you spoke to were your own age have you gotten to know a, a fairly large community of them are you still in touch with networks of them um, as you have uh, finished and, and begin to, to publicize um, this book? I am, um, and I have, and I, I think what facilitated the work is that this is a kind of a population that 
as they kind of came of age, I think in their 20s and especially the 30s, were increasingly interested in their own stories and telling those stories in kind of diverse ways and reconnecting with one another. Um, and the model, I think, of, Vietnam, of Korean adoptees was illustrative for Vietnamese. And of course, the Korean adopted community is much larger than the Vietnamese um, adopted community. But um, I think that that suggested the possibility of finding those who had had kind of a shared experience and were wondering about, you know, birth families, birth relatives in, in Vietnam or that had come to the United States or might be interested in returning to Vietnam as part of a, a kind of heritage experience. Um, so I was able to kind of tap into those communities, I think, more readily because they were Vietnamese um, kind of adoptees and Aboriginals were finding one another. Um, and I think new forms of social media make that so much easier. Um, I think some of the adoptees certainly found that that there was this powerful commonality of, of being adopted and being asked about the Vietnam War and wondering about Vietnam. But I think they often found that there were enough lines of kind of disconnection based upon kind of where they'd grown up and their socioeconomic background and 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 such. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious also, since a number of them are um, active, not only in kind of sustaining a Vietnamese adopted community, but advocating for um, reunions with Vietnamese relatives and American fathers. Um, there's attempts also to assure the, the citizenship rights of, of Amerasians who were given kind of privileged immigration status under the Amerasian Homecoming Act, but weren't given kind of the, the rights of, of US citizenship at, at that time. So, I'm, I'm trying to kind of stay connected and, and see what's happening among um, among that group. I think we'll talk more about your your um, sense of these um, these adoptees and their search for, um, as you put it in, in the fourth chapter, sort of their their place in the world and their connections to uh, families both here in the U.S. and and in Vietnam. Um, we'll talk more about that as we as we talk about chapter four. But I really find that. Um, especially the part where you talk about the, the ways in which new technologies have enabled you uh, to do research, but also en enabled them to, to uh, find those connections um, really brings that, uh, that story to um, our current moment. Um, I wonder then if, if, as we've already started talking a little bit about some of the other um, narratives that are out there about Asian adoptees, uh, in the United States and the histories of those adoptees. You mentioned the Korean uh, adoptees, which is a much larger uh, group, as you said, um, in terms of, of numbers. You and I have exchanged some emails where um, you know, we, we sort of talked quickly about some of the other books that are uh, currently out there. In fact, there seems to be sort of some recent interest in um, adoptees uh, and families, as you said, as a site of, of politics. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see this literature shaping up um, and uh, what in particular, uh, at a very broad level, Children of Reunion adds to that conversation and that historiography. Oh, sure. Um... Yeah, no, I think that there is really wonderful emergent literature. I think most strikingly, um, Catherine Cezina Choi's book about global families and Arisa O's work on Korean adoption and Susie Wu. Um, and, and I think, so Vietnamese adoptions is part of that larger history of 
of Americans and probably Europeans and Australians too, adopting children from Asia and just adopting foreign children. Um, that is a relatively, I think, new phenomenon, um, really dating to the, the middle of the 20th century and World War II when um, Americans were trying to care for European refugee children who had been displaced by conflict there. Um, but I think there's also a larger kind of shift in American practice of how they're understanding the place of foreign children and like, driven by both kind of political and humanitarian impulses, Americans have sent kind of aid to children in um, kind of struggling regions. I think that that's a long historical pattern. Um, but I think after World War II, increasingly Americans are thinking about um, not just kind of sending assistance and supporting kind of social welfare um, structures in the home countries, but maybe bringing those children to the United States. Um, and part of that is a sense of what the United States could offer these children in terms of kind of material benefits and democratic values, but also just um, frankly, a heightened demand for children as fertility rates fall in the United States and having a child out of wedlock is less of a social stigma. So you know, single mothers can, can hold on to their children. So I think part of this is a demand and supply story. And then in terms of where Americans are looking for kind of children to expand their families, realize that kind of very private personal need, but maybe sometimes also express their political ideas. They're looking to Asia because the United States is increasingly um, involved in Asia um, in, a, in a way of violence and in a way of um, you know, social aid. So the Vietnamese story kind of picks up on um, Americans thinking about Asian children. And I should say they Americans are often thinking about Asian girls in particular. And there's, you know, others have talked about that, that representation of the, you know, the docile um, Asian girl um, who will maybe more readily fit into these American families. So when the Vietnam War kind of breaks out and Americans discover Vietnam, they find it on, on the map. Um, in some ways, they're kind of primed to, to think about um, rescuing um, Vietnamese children. But, but I find what's, a, what's different, I think, about the, the Vietnamese case um, is that Americans are increasingly critical of U.S. foreign policy. Um, so the, the, the growing kind of frustration and, and anger about how this war is unfolding and how the United States government is conducting itself, I think, shapes the adoption story. So a lot of these American parents, when they're reaching out, they're reaching out as part of their anti-war sentiment. So this is not a fulfillment of American foreign policy, I think as it was in the Korean and sometimes the Chinese case where American parents saw themselves as, as forwarding the U.S. anti-communist um, crusade by helping these poor, desperate children who would lapse in these communist countries or possibly communist countries. Um, in Vietnam, they're often saying we have made, the United States has made a mess here, right? And so we're embarrassed and, and we want to make good where, where our nation has has misstepped. Um, so, so that seems different um, in the Vietnamese case. Um, I think it's also that these Vietnamese adoptees are are migrating 
during and um, just before this major wave of Vietnamese refugees, right? And so I think to think of them as a kind of refugee, whether they were um, whether they were self-conscious or not about it, uh, is is a different way of understanding, I think, their adoption um, and also trying to understand them as part of this Vietnamese refugee experience and what Vietnamese refugees are struggling with, the kind of claims that they make on, on the United States or attempt to, um, to make on the United States. And then just the, the broader conflict between, I think, the United States and Vietnamese about the kind of the legacies of the war and what the United States um, owes um, kind of Vietnam for kind of the violence that it um, participated in there. Yeah, so what you said, I think, really helps us understand the, the first chapter of, of Children of Reunion. So the, the idea of almost uh, adoption as a form of war protest or, or disagreement with the war aims, right? That um, that's um, in, in your first chapter, which is entitled Vietnamese Adoptions in the Early War Years. That's sort of the um, underpinning um, of, of how um, Americans, especially those on the left, uh, begin to see adoption uh, the adoption of, of Vietnamese children. I wonder if it was true that if that's the case, do you think, um, and I, I wasn't um, able to, to, to find this in the book, but I wonder if, um, does that mean that uh, Vietnamese children were more likely to have grown up in uh, politically liberal families? Um, if this is sort of the um, you know rhetoric and discourse out of which their adoption emerged, um, or do you think it actually did range across the entire political spectrum? I, I wonder if I guess if there's sort of a political divide, right, in how Asian adoptions occurred between um, the more sometimes religiously motivated, the uh, Christian uh, fundamentalistly um, motivated adoption of Korean um, uh, children versus, say, in in, in this case, um, the kind of radical uh, war protest adoption of Vietnamese um, children? That's a great question. Um, and I didn't kind of quantify um, the, you know, the political leanings of the adoptive parents. I think what I did notice is that there was um, a clear um, and kind of strong presence of liberal-leaning parents um, who were making their anti-war kind of politics part of their explanation of adoption um, that that were not part of an earlier kind of adoption case from kind of Korea or China. Um, I, I definitely think that there is a kind of persistence, though, as you're suggesting, among maybe more religious conservatives, those who were supportive of the war, who were also adopting Vietnamese children, who saw these images um, on the television. A lot of um, the adoptive parents talked about this 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 imagery um, of poor, desperate-looking children and feeling a religious or a kind of humanitarian kind of pull to adopt them. Um, so I think that that's maybe an uneven answer to your question. Part of this is, is based upon the sources. Among the, the sources that I looked at, and we might talk about this later, are the, the records of these anti-war groups that are housed at, at Swarthmore, um, particularly the Friends Meeting for the Suffering of Vietnamese Children and the Committee of Responsibility. And they are um, kind of Quaker-based groups um, that, that have kind of a broader membership 
um, but they're deeply critical of the war and they're talking about Vietnamese children very early on um, in, in the 1960s and how to kind of help them. And there's some actually before adoption is recommended and there is actually some dispute among these kind of liberal leaning Americans about whether adoption is always the right answer um, and whether it might not be better to provide kind of medical care and other services with these Vietnamese so they're not taken away from from their Vietnamese families. Um, and that that seems to be a change in the kind of the rhetoric or thinking about adoption too. Not that there, again, there isn't a persistence of a more kind of conservative idea that when you adopt these Vietnamese children, they will become American and should become American through kind of teaching English very quickly and they're learning baseball or other, you know, traditional ideas of, of American white identity. Um, but I think that the adoptive parents are also thinking, how do we preserve Vietnamese culture? Um, how do we um, make our kind of children understand where they're from? And, and that seems different um, than I think an earlier generation of adoptive parents who are much more focused on how do we assimilate and integrate um, these children, again, make them kind of adopt white American norms as, as quickly as possible. Right. Right. It, I guess shifting gears a little bit to another part of that first chapter, um, you also talk about the the um, sort of gendering of um, especially um, the role of U.S. soldiers um, in this case by portraying them as caring fathers rather than as, as sort of brutal warriors, which had been their kind of um, reputation coming out of the Vietnam War. Um, so how does that how does that process happen? Um, and, and what is the what is the history there? Yeah, no, thank, I, that seems really kind of important to, to understanding kind of the participation and the representation of American um, soldiers, many of whom are the fathers or suspected fathers of some of these Vietnamese who are children who are in kind of orphanages and will be adopted um, by American families. And you know, there, there's other historians who who've talked about um, the ways in which the U.S. government tried to moderate the image of the, the brutal American soldier as a way of kind of uh, explaining or justifying U.S. intervention um, in the region. Um, and there is criticism of American GIs for um, abusing Vietnamese women or for um, taking too lightly their kind of paternal responsibilities if they if their father um, um, children in Vietnam. But I think there's also this this history that is maybe less talked about of, of American kind of GIs and um, American men who are working in other capacities in, in Vietnam um, who are um, accepting that kind of position of father, whether they are the fathers of these Vietnamese children or not, um, and that that's a, a way for them um, to kind of ease their own, I think, discomforts with the war and the violence of the war, right, that, that is seen kind of on the bodies of, of these children. And um, in, the, in the book, one of the cases that, that I found really kind of persuasive and powerful was that of um, Ken and, and Ree Armstrong. Um, and Ken is this American um, GI and medic who encounters Re, uh, this young, um, actually Cambodian boy, I know, who was found in Vietnam and brought into um, 
a U.S. hospital and he's lost his leg. Um, and Ken is in the hospital and is just completely charmed by this, this boy um, whose family is, has also kind of disappeared and, and likely um, died in the conflict. And, and Ken becomes an advocate for the boy and tries to uh, adopt him, which um, is actually extremely difficult. Um, I think other part of this story is the ways in which single um, Americans who are trying to adopt find themselves stymied both by the U.S. military and the U.S. government, um, and sometimes the Vietnamese government, who's not kind of supportive of of those kinds of, of, of parenting arrangements. So um, Ken actually ultimately has to use his own parents as a kind of proxy um, adopter so that he can um, adopt and it's a kind of a long, a long kind of struggle and story. But I, I think his case does um, suggest another um, understanding of how men are, American men are involved in this adoption story, because it's often framed as, you know, the Vietnamese woman um, and the American adoptive mother, right? That, that the, kind of this white American um, is kind of longing for a child or is, whether critical of the Vietnam War or and or um, driven by humanitarian desires, um, takes this baby from the Vietnamese women and, and the men are often kind of sidelined or absent. Um, so I found that, that men were actually more central in these kind of decisions to adopt and to take these, these Vietnamese children than, than we might have thought. And for those who are interested in... Um Looking at the book later on, I will say that there is a totally charming picture of Rhee and Ken Armstrong in a field hospital in Vietnam in 1969 in the book as one of many uh, sort of uh, wonderful illustrations of this history um, in, in Children of Reunion. Um, Allison, I wonder if we can now turn to uh, to talk a little bit about Chapter Two. I think we've sort of set a, a nice sort of foundation for understanding of, of, the, of this history in the early part of the Cold War. Um, and Chapter Two is entitled After the Airlifts. Uh, which uh, and and it centers really on on uh, Operation Babylift and the uh, sort of response to Operation Babylift in, in uh, uh, which happened in 1975. I think some folks may be uh, familiar with Operation Babylift and the kind of publicity stunts that came out of uh, President Ford at the airport in San Francisco with babies coming off of the plane. But for those who aren't as familiar, can you give us a little bit on um, what Operation Babylift was and why it was so potent as a, a symbol of uh, American reaction uh, and response to Vietnam? Sure, absolutely. And this is definitely the most dramatic and, as you suggested, I think, familiar episode in the larger history of Vietnamese um, adoptions. But um, but I think it, it, right, it is rightfully kind of familiar and dramatic. So this... The, the airlifts take place in, in 1975 and are really part of a larger attempt by the U.S. government um, to depart Vietnam um, as the um, as the North Vietnamese um, uh, kind of descend into the South and, and take seize control. Um, and it is over over just over kind of 2,000 um, Vietnamese children are flown out of Vietnam, um, the, the majority of them are actually processed at San Francisco's Presidio, the military outpost, about 1,500. Um, it is dramatic because I think of the, the scale of the removal and 
because of the, the participation of the U.S. government. Um, and also one of the first kind of planes that takes off actually crashes and half of um, half of, of those on the plane die. Right? So there's um, just a lot of kind of agony and loss here. Um, what's also going to striking um, is the immediate reaction to Operation Baby Lift. And if you look at kind of the media accounts and certainly the, the government's representation of, of Operation Baby Lift, um, this is an example, seen as an example of Americans kind of making right by a bad war, right? That these are kind of innocent and sometimes kind of damaged children that, that the United States have rescued, that this is an expression of our kind of benevolence um, and might be a way that we can feel good about a war that, that few Americans have felt good about. Um, but it becomes clear um, that this Operation Baby Lift might have other kind of implications and in, instead of kind of settling an account of what this war means for the United States, it just continues to churn those means. Um, so at the Presidio, um, there's a couple of uh, volunteers, uh, Vietnamese-speaking volunteers, um, who are having conversations with the more mature um, Vietnamese children and realize that maybe these children are not orphans, that they might have family in the United States that they're trying to connect to, or that they got separated from family in Vietnam who did not authorize their relinquishment. Um, and from those cases, um, a, a lawsuit is filed charging the U.S. government, kind of key officials, including Kissinger, um, with um, kind of airlifting or taking these children who were not legitimate orphans. And there's a really painful um, class action suit that, that unfolds in which Vietnamese refugees are brought to the fore to tell their stories of how they um, suffered through the war um, and may have not intended the kind of the, the abandonment or the relinquishment of their children, um, but saw the the airlift as part of a larger kind of strategy of getting out of Vietnam and hopefully reconnecting with their families. Yeah, so the lawsuit that you're mentioning, which I'll note for listeners, is Nguyen Da Yen et al., the Kissinger et al., um, is I think that the, the parts of the book or of, of chapter two where you write about this lawsuit were some of the most heartrending because you see uh, not only the kind of resourcefulness and, and humanity of the Vietnamese women who are, I think as you write on page 57, individuals making tough but deliberate choices amid arduous circumstances, right? So they're, they're sort of really um, inventive um, in the ways in which they're trying to keep their families together in the long term, as you said. Um, but then also these, uh, the responses on the other sides uh, where you have groups like the Council for Rights of Adoptive Families um, who are making... Um, just in, you know, I think it, it's hard to read them without being a little bit angry, uh, uh, I felt, um, in, in some of the arguments they were trotting out against the Vietnamese mothers, um, saying that they had taken, uh, uh, they had not taken good care of their children because they had poor oral health and, and other health issues. Um, so, so can you maybe spin out both sides of this, this lawsuit for us a little bit um, in terms of um, who the players were involved and, and sort of the emotional content and, and weight that really comes out of Nguyen V. Uh, Kissinger. Sure, sure. No, it's, it's, um, it's really kind of agonizing because I think both sides are in a position of such kind of 
pain of uncertainty, right? Um, so, so the lawsuit is filed for the Center for Constitutional Rights that is situated in New York. But among the key players are actually these Bay Area attorneys, among them um, Tom Miller, who is married to um, a Vietnamese woman who is a self-proclaimed revolutionary. Um, the, the couple are still kind of active in all kinds of liberal causes. I was able to, to interview them for, for the book. Um, but, and Anu is also at the Presidio. She's one of the women who, who comes to doubt whether all these children are orphans and, and family lists. Um, so the suit is, is filed um, and the plaintiffs who are trying or claiming to be apolitical are very much against the war, right? And that seeps into their arguments. Um, and I think that it might affect how the judge kind of interprets their their arguments and the evidence. Um, but what they have to kind of support their assertions are um, they kind of investigate, they do a series of interviews with um, the Vietnamese um, children who were adopted and they have a list of names of those whose paperwork is uncertain. Um, they also find specific Vietnamese mothers who have come to the United States um, and are trying to find their children and say that they have been blocked by U.S. officials, some of whom have been um, you know, completely insensitive to their cases. Um, there, there's one example of a Vietnamese woman who's asking around in Camp Pendleton, and she she claims that the uh, government officials say, you know, have another child, right? That, that that's the solution to her loss. Um, but a number of these Vietnamese um, women, and it's not just mothers. Sometimes it's you know aunts or grandparents who um, were entrusted with trying to recover these Vietnamese children because their mothers remained in, in Vietnam, um, that, that they're testifying that these, these children are, are not orphans, um, that in fact that they were placed in orphanages as a kind of safe space and temporary space, um, and that Americans don't really understand um, the complexity and the breadth of Vietnamese family connections that that you take care of your own, um, whether it's your kind of immediate um, kin, kin or not. Um, on the other side, though, you have the adoption agencies and the adoptive parents who are saying, wait a second, these, these children were legitimately relinquished, that we did try to consider the real concerns of the, these Vietnamese mothers um, and kin who begged us to take their children to the United States. Um, they also say, you know, it was so chaotic um, by the, you know, 1975, that if they don't have the right paperwork, it's only because it was impossible and that they were concerned with, with just the survival of these children. Um, others, of course, also, the, especially these adoptive parents, um, many of whom who, who had no idea of the, the circumstances under which these children came to them, um, are saying, well, we've fallen in love with the, this child that that they've become part of our family, um, that they are readily um, adapting to, quote, American ways. And there's um, there's various evidence of that from a, a child's love of hamburgers to a child's love of, of baseball. Um, and so the judge is, is trying to kind of suss out these, these starkly competing claims. Um, and in the end, it decides that it, it, it's too muddied, um, too complex, that, that maybe there's not enough evidence to support a, a class action suit. So he uh, he tosses out the, the um, 
the case. Um, and that leads a number of Vietnamese families to just have to pursue their ca- their, their cases individually. Um, and kind of Tom Miller and his forces support some of those efforts that that are successful. I found probably five or six kind of high high profile cases where the Vietnamese families after um, the the class action suit are able to recover um, their Vietnamese children. Um, And and that's heartbreaking for the American families um, too. So uh, there's no kind of clear winner um, in in this story, I think as is the case with all kind of custody battles. Um, But you see the ways in which the the larger kind of conflict of the Vietnam War is played out through the, the frame of the family. Yeah, it, it really does seem like this lawsuit, you know, should be part of any discussion that we now have about um, the legal history of, of Asian Americans and, uh, and Asians in the United States, um, because it is such a complex um, issue. Um, we've so far talked mostly in terms of the Vietnamese adoptees um, of, of folks who are um, uh, whose parents both were, were of Vietnamese um, origin. Um, you have a, a third chapter, uh, which is entitled Amerasians, Families, and Hopes of Homecoming, which is about a slightly different group uh, of, uh, of adoptees that, that are uh, called Amerasians. Um, I wonder if you could help us uh, understand why it's important to distinguish between the Amerasian experience and the Vietnamese uh, adoptee experience. Sure. Uh, part of it is is timing, right? So, so that third chapter looks at kind of Amerasians who have grown up in in Vietnam um, and have often struggled because of their um, mixed identity. Um, and I think others have have written about the kind of the struggles of of this population. Um, in the absence of their American fathers, that they are often kind of suspect um, that there is um, a, a ra- certainly a racial prejudice that, that prevails in Vietnam. There's also, uh, I think, an understanding that these children represent the enemy or represent kind of U.S. power, or the abuse of U.S. power in the area. Um, often the Vietnamese women, even if these were consensual relationships and loving relationships with American men and often long-lasting relationships with American men, um, it's, it's often seen and misunderstood that, that these women were um, somehow licentious and, and sexually available and are women of ill repute. And all those kind of bad feelings and misunderstandings are um, complicating the lives of Amerasians. And so in, in their accounts, um, Growing up in Vietnam, they talk often about their mothers, first of all, trying to disguise their American features, right? So, um, you know, adding color to their hair, right, to darken it, um, or not being able to just go to school because the taunting is so ferocious. Um, so this is a, a group, I guess I argue, that could have been, might have been adopted in the 1960s and 1970s, because many of those who adopted in that period were likely um, Amerasians. Um, and in my interviews with them, they say, I, I think I am, I'm not sure, I don't know who my father is, I'm not sure who my, my biological father and mother are. But um, Amerasians who've grown up in Vietnam, uh, by the 1980s, there is a growing kind of campaign that is driven, I think, by 
by Amerasians, by the Vietnamese um, families, um, but also by um, American GIs and some um, American legislators who are noting what has happened to them or the kind of their struggles um, um, in Vietnam. And in the 1980s, Americans are still talking about fretting over the Vietnam War and what it means. They're often talking less about what it means for Vietnam, but what does it mean for Americans? So uh, out of that kind of kind of talk and continued uncertainty about, about the, the war, um, there is uh, legislation proposed to bring kind of Amerasian kind of youth um, to the United States. Um, and, then, and the first iteration of the bill in 1982 is kind of striking because it, it will favor Amerasian youth, um, but doesn't see them as youth who have family members. Um, so it doesn't allow their, their mothers or other close kin to immigrate with them. The result is that very few Amerasians take advantage of that legislation. Um, so the U.S. legislators kind of go back and negotiate and hatch a, a, the kind of the second and more um, impactful law, the Amerasian Homecoming Act in 1988. Um, and that results in a kind of a large wave of Amerasians and their family members. That law allows them to bring their kind of close relations um, with them, or at least a select number of their close relations. So those Amerasians um, are coming to the United States as kind of young adults. Um, many of the, the arguments, though, that were made in favor of the Amerasian Homecoming Act often by Americans often pictured and treated the Amerasians as kind of children who were familyless and familyless and needed to be again rescued um, that were American rather than Vietnamese because of their American fathers and that this maybe much like the the airlift and the broader adoption of Vietnamese children could be the the last and final apology for kind of a war that had gone wrong. So in terms of kind of the rhetoric that justifies the legislation. Um, and um, uh, the conception of, of these Amerasians as, as children, I, I see that as connected to the, the earlier adoption story. Yeah, and I, I should note for listeners that in terms of just numbers, I think you write that roughly 20,000 Amerasians arrived in the United States between 1982 and 1993. Interestingly, you know, 5,000 of those, so almost a quarter were uh, of um, African-American parentage. Um, uh, which is an interesting uh, story. Before um, we talk about that, though, I think one of the things that I that struck me as I was reading this particular chapter was how, because of the Amerasian Homecoming Act um, provision for families to to come over with uh, um, the adoptees or to be brought over to the United, uh, to the United States uh, with the adoptees. Uh, first of all, the sort of um, resonances with. Um, family reunification debates that we're having uh, today is, is very strong. As you write, the family unity sort of principle that is defined as a humanitarian concern uh, is fairly restricted, right? So they didn't want to draw the circle of family too widely, um, even though they do recognize that families are important. Um, but one of the things that, that show up um, in that case is uh, you write about these sort of families of, of convenience um, or, or families of opportunity, you know, that are constructed um, 
in order to to take advantage of this provision. Um, and one of the things that happens is that there are sort of real psychological costs and social costs um, to that kind of agency, uh, because when those families do come to the United States, um, there are sort of consequences in terms of uh, breaking down, people feeling like they've been taken advantage of, et cetera. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, sort of the, the ways in which people live out um, the uh, these pieces of legislation that are written in the 1980s uh, to um, uh, to help sort of admirations uh, uh, come to and their families come to the United States uh, and build lives here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think... Um as admirations kind of win this kind of privileged status or privileged opportunity um, of coming to the United States, um, there are other kind of Vietnamese um, who are not related to admirations who um, try to curry favor with admirations. They too want to come to the United States, see that uh, I think that the language is that these admirations are a kind of golden ticket. Um, so often they will purchase kind of the price of kinship, right? So essentially the Amerasian would agree to pretend familial relations, right? Um, whether this be um, this this um, this other Vietnamese be kind of a son or a daughter or, or kind of a spouse. Um, and so they they play the part of kind of family in these resettlement camps, right? The Amerasians have to kind of spend significant time there being kind of indoctrinated or educated in, in American ways um, before landing in, in the United States. Um, but there are, there are quite a number of cases where that these um, families of, of convenience um, become um, really places or spaces of, of kind of painful conflict, right? The Amerasians talk about the ways in which they are abused by these kind of fictitious kin, both in the resettlement camps and also when they reach the United States. Um, and that that is deeply troubling kind of psychologically. Um, and there are cases kind of abuse once they reach the United States and the fictive families now have gotten where they want to get and, and kind of disappear, leaving the Amerasian um, alone. Um, certainly not all Amerasians kind of came to the United States with those kind of fictitious kin. Some came with, with their own families. Um, I, I think the struggle sometimes for, for Amerasians is, is there was an expectation on their part and the Americans' part that, again, if these are, if the justification for the Amerasian Homecoming Act is that we're essentially bringing American children home, that they're not really Vietnamese, then that their settlement in the United States will be kind of quick and easy, right? That these aren't foreigners and that, that they shouldn't have the same level of, of, of kind of support um, that, that other refugees might have. Um, so when it becomes the case that, that in fact these Amerasians, who many of whom don't, do not speak English um, and are not kind of culturally American, um, are, are struggling, then the, the rhetoric turns towards, oh, was this a mistake or is this one more example of how we you know, can't, can't settle the war? Um, I think though, I also found though in my research, as much as Amerasians were often kind of understood as another kind of struggling immigrant population over time, um, the Amerasians themselves showed a level of kind of agency and organization um, as they kind of found one another, um, as they kind of re-migrated to communities where there were large um, 
uh, Vietnamese um, populations already. Um, there's an Amerasian uh, network led by kind of Jimmy Miller and, and a few others that advocates for Amerasian issues, Amerasians advocates for Amerasians that are still in Vietnam um, and tries to sometimes facilitate um, connections between Amerasians and their Vietnamese families already in the United States or their American fathers. I think this is a, a part of the book that will, will speak really nicely to um, uh, the, the scholarship that we're beginning to see on, on mixed race uh, or, or Hapa Asian Americans um, and sort of give an, an earlier uh, uh, sort of um, account of, of how one part of that community um, uh, came to came to be. Um, but I think uh, for now, I'd love to um, turn to chapter four, um, which um, is entitled Living Legacies. And, and for me, the, the, the theme that really emerged um, out of this chapter was the question, who speaks for Vietnamese adoptees? Um, the, there are so many different organizations um, in the beginning of the 90s um, that uh, start to uh, try to reconnect Vietnamese adoptees to their homeland uh, uh, and, and to their families uh, in Vietnam, running heritage tours, um, some of which seem potentially commercially exploitative um, and uh, and, and questionable in, in ethics. Uh, but then the Vietnamese adoptees also themselves begin to form um, organizations that uh, take um, their own uh, personal histories and family histories into their own hands. So I wonder if you could maybe uh, speak to, to that theme. Who speaks for Vietnamese adoptees uh, in the 1990s? Um, and, uh, you know, and I guess that, that also in, requires us to think a little bit too as Asian American studies scholars uh, about how we are also participating in that in that overall project as, as we narrate that history. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, and um, certainly by the nineteen nineties, the, these Vietnamese adoptees and Aborigines are kind of old enough and familiar enough, I think, with with American history um, to be making claims on their own behalf um, in a way that they certainly weren't. Um, during the 1970s, when there's so much talking about these kind of children and what these children mean for Vietnamese refugees and Americans, but the children are are largely, um, you know, the objects of, of the discussion, not the subject. So um, I think as Vietnamese are are joining the conversation in the 1990s, um, and that's also importantly a, a decade when the United States relationship with Vietnam is normalized. Um, so Americans are beginning to think differently about. Um, Vietnam as kind of a country and um, and the place of, of U.S. violence there, but I think these these adoptees are certainly an incredibly diverse group, um, and, and I think that was that was striking um, in terms of really their their socioeconomics, their location, their you know their sexuality, um, their, their politics, um, but they did have many of them had this kind of shared desire to know something about their past. And then in knowing something about their own past, um, that that became kind of political um, and that they were arguing uh, against this idea of adoptees um, as grateful, right? Um, and I think Americans who think about adoption, think about the children as fortunate, right, that they got out of tough circumstances and are the, the beneficiaries of American kind of kindness and, and security. And I think the the adoptee said, well, 
yes and no, right? Um, and that there's an incredible kind of weight to be born if you are always asked to be grateful, right? Um, and that that really kind of covers over the larger context of their adoptions, right? They, they came out of kind of U.S. again violence in, in Asia. So um, I think one of the things that I, I was trying to do, especially in, in this chapter, is to try to, to kind of let um, the Vietnamese adoptees um, kind of speak or represent it as, as much as much as I could. So there's um, a lot of the, the text from the oral histories that I um, conducted um, in terms of those reunion and heritage tours. Uh, yeah, some of them seem much more serving the cause of um, the organization itself, right? Either to financially benefit um, or to continue this idea that the United States um, kind of rescued children and made good in Vietnam. Um, I should say every time, it's probably appropriate that we're doing this interview in April, you know, every time it's the anniversary of the quote fall of Saigon, there's some kind of story that, that I think strikes that theme of, of rescue. Um, but I, I, I really kind of appreciated finding these stories of, of Vietnamese who were um, adoptees who were kind of challenging that and complicating it. Yeah, and I do love the way that you you um, help us think about the intersectionality of their identities. Again, as you said, beyond just sort of their um, life histories as as adoptees, but also their you know gender, their class, and and to some extent, those identities can uh, create complications in how they relate to one another. Um, one of the one of the other um, things I found interesting about uh, this chapter is that there was a mention of um, at least one adoptee who had, I think, a sister named uh, Birgit uh, who had been uh, raised in in Germany, um, and there were also uh, uh, traces of, of uh, adoptees um, who who pop up who had grown up in in Australia, um, and I wondered to what extent was this actually then. Uh, also, in, in part, an international story. You write that most of the, the Vietnamese adoptees did, in fact, settle in the United States. But uh, you know, one of the things that they do as they uh, um, organize themselves in the '90s is they begin to find, you know, branch of their fa- branches of their families that had um, uh, resettled in different, not just parts of the United States, but different parts of the world. Do you have a sense for um, how the Vietnamese adoptee story? differs um, in the United States versus, say, Germany or Australia, which are, again, some of the countries that came up in your research where uh, Vietnamese adoptees did find their way? Oh, so, yeah. No, it, it is. I'm glad you, you brought brought that up. Um, that this, even if I'm focused upon um, Vietnamese adoptions by Americans and what that what that means for kind of a U.S. Vietnamese experience, um, that adoptees, um, landed in Europe and in Australia. There, there might be cases in Latin America. I haven't seen any of those. It was, really, it was pretty much those two theaters. Um, and I, I didn't look in detail or in a kind of comparative lens. Um, but my sense is that, that, that when these adoptees get together um, across national borders, they do find kind of similar themes of, um, of a kind of a, a of a struggle um, to kind of fit into the national norms, um, a desire to know more about their pasts, um, and the kind of the value of seeing those uh, connections. Um, I, I, the way that the these adoptees 
are kind of, they're, they're obviously separated from one another. They're separated um, from their family members, but there's also really curious ways in which sometimes the, these adoptees also had um, some of their siblings remained in Vietnam and then um, came to the United States, um, sometimes as part of the Amerasian Homecoming Act. So you have, you know, siblings who are some in Vietnam, some in the United States, and then sometimes kind of connecting um, much later in life um, and, and, and noting these really powerful connections despite their, their very different kind of personal stories. I, I really would love to, to have more time to, to talk to you about uh, so many other parts of this book. Um, you know, we didn't even really get a chance to talk about your methodology for oral history. I feel bad, though, because we, we've already taken up so much of your time. Um, so as we wrap up, um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment or what your next project is, Allison. Sure, sure. No, gosh, the time has gone too quickly. Um, so I have a, a project that looks at um, the place of immigrants and the children of immigrants in um, Southern California's commercial restaurants um, since World War II. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious about kind of restaurants as spaces where different immigrant groups um, at a time when kind of immigration accelerated and Americans were increasingly eating out as a as both a convenience um, and as an expression of, of women's new uh, working habits, um, what those spaces meant in terms of the creation of immigrant communities and, and identities. Um, and uh, the surprising origin of the project was actually not in an immigrant story, um, but in um, the story of Carl Karcher, of, of Carl's junior fame. It's not a restaurant I had ventured into, but the family is settled in Orange County. And so they approached um, Cal State Fullerton and wanted some interviews to be done. Um, and we did those interviews, but on the condition that, that they would help us support a larger kind of project that collects the, um, the tales of those connected to restaurants, again, that originated in Southern California, many of them becoming national. Um, with the idea that there's something maybe kind of special or or unique about kind of the preparation of food in these public settings by immigrants, um, and so I've been uh, I've been wrestling and, and working with that, doing a lot of oral histories and and a, and a lot of uh, reading. Um, I love uh, Mark uh, Pot's new book about uh, the flavors of empire, looking at um, the Thai community in LA and what food meant for it. Yeah, and and uh, as you probably know, we, we featured Mark's book um, in in February uh, on on the New Books uh, podcast, and I agree with you. It, it, that's also a fantastic read for uh, for listeners who are interested in in more about um, uh, family businesses and and restaurants and immigration um, in the in the twentieth century. Um, well, Austin, I, I um, really want to thank you for being on the show today. This was such a wonderful conversation. Uh, we touched on so many things um, uh, related to, to this topic. And I really, again, love the idea of centering the family as a site of politics um, uh, and the ways in which uh, the United States uh, and, and Vietnam were intertwined uh, at, uh, in, that, in that central site. Um, so thank you again for writing a, a lovely book. Thank you again for um, the time. Uh, for this conversation. Um, I really enjoyed it. Oh, well, I did. Thank you so much for your, your close reading and questions. And I, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much.
Alrighty, take care. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Alison Barsali, professor of history at California State University, Fullerton, about her new book, Children of Reunion, Vietnamese Adoptions and the Politics of Family Migrations, published in 2017 by the University of North Carolina Press. Thanks for listening to the New Books in Asian American Studies podcast. We'll see you next time.